There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. I'm Norman Rosenthal, and I'm a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University School of Medicine. Thirty years ago, my colleagues and I described seasonal affective disorder, acronym SAD, for the first time. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it. Any, tis the seal, despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. Sad is a, an illness where you feel sort of sleepy and sluggish. It's a kind of... Mm. It's that sort of loss of the quality of light. When the light is going downwards, that it really gets to me. Which is why, I mean, for me, November and December are definitely the worst months. Depression, anxiety, feelings of failure, feelings of, you know, wanting to end it all. It's when the light is getting less, you know, when it's lowering day by day, you know, it's getting dark by three o'clock in the afternoon. That is absolutely the worst thing. Apathy, lethargy, inability to function in a normal way. Your brain doesn't work. You knock into things, you break things. Not only do I feel different, but I look different. It's a very primitive feeling, I think. An expression I always used to identify with was this expression, the hour of the wolf, because that's exactly what it felt like. Um, a time when you know the wolves were homing in on you and you had to get back to your cave. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. I'm Tilly Tansey, Professor of History of Modern Medical Sciences at Queen Mary. Well, I've been at Queen Mary School of History for four years. I'm a specialist in the history of modern biomedicine. And my colleague Thomas Dixon heads the Centre for the History of Emotions. So for some time we've been talking about areas of common interest. I run a particular kind of meeting called Witness Seminars, uh, to which we gather together people who've been involved in particular debates or discoveries or events in the past 30, 40 years to discuss what really happened, i.e. to get behind the, the published literature, to hear the hidden voices, not just the well-known voices. I'm Thomas Dixon, and I run the Centre for the History of Emotions, and we're interested right back through history, but especially modern history, about the way that feelings have changed and very often that includes a medical dimension what has been considered pathological or healthy in terms of people's emotional lives. And so Thomas and I thought that this might be a good mechanism, a good forum to use to explore something of common interest to both our research groups. As soon as Tilly suggested SAD as a topic I thought this was a brilliant example of something that historians of emotions could really get their teeth into because it's quite a recent phenomenon with a history, but quite a short history. As a disorder, it's only 30 years old. Uh, it's 30 years since Norman Rosenthal and other colleagues first published and named this disorder. And yet it's something that's come to have great public recognition. People know about it. Most of us probably have friends or colleagues who tell us about these distressing changes in mood as the seasons change and as the light gets less and less. Seasonal affective disorder is a condition that occurs year after year. 
as the days get short and dark. People with a condition slow down, have difficulty waking in the morning, they tend to sleep too much. They overeat, especially sweets and starches, they gain weight. They withdraw from friends and family and they can't concentrate on their work. So they begin to fail across the board and that's very depressing. They get sad, they get down and it can get quite bad in some people. In others, it's not so bad. It just diminishes creativity and productivity. But in some people, it's a very disheartening, sad condition. I'm Jennifer Eastwood. I have SAD and I used to run the SAD Association. I started to be ill at the age of about 28. And to begin with, all the doctors thought I was overworking. They told me to have a holiday, but nobody had thought of light. So the first year was pretty bad, but I sat up, I remember sitting up in bed one day, and it was about April the 9th, and just feeling better. I just knew I'd been very depressed and then suddenly, very suddenly, got better. I just went, wee! The reason I got into seasonal affective disorder in the first place was in recognizing it in myself when I moved from South Africa to the United States. And those first winters were so difficult because I didn't know what was causing the problem, why I was slowing down, why I was less productive and less able to be creative. And it was only after three or four years that it all came together by the research that we did at the National Institute of Mental Health, whereby we identified that it was the light that was driving the symptoms. Research was starting in London. Both Chris Thompson and Stuart Checkley at the Maudsley knew Norman and all the workers at the NIMH. They were advertising in the popular media. I read an article in Woman magazine, filled in the questionnaire, and sent it off to Charing Cross Hospital, where they were running one of the first clinics. And I got, you know, full marks, top of the class, and uh, went along to see them. So we started off with a, a trial of light therapy, which was the new treatment. I see the causes of seasonal affective disorder as threefold. There's the lack of light. Secondly, there is stress. But fundamentally, there's also some kind of biological predisposition. My guess is that there are probably many different genes involved in the processing of light. They've got this huge metal box, which they made in the hospital physics lab. Just very crude, with lots of bright light tubes. They dragged this old box next to my bed one morning, and I kind of grunted and turned over and <laughs> all that sort of thing. Anyway, I did this for a few days, and one day I sort of sat up, and I still felt awful, sort of psychologically, but I felt very different. So I said to one of the doctors, do you know what's happening to me? He said, yeah, you're getting better. The more light I had, the better I was. Emily Dickinson says, inebriate of the air am I and debauchee of dew, reeling through endless summer days and inns of molten blue. So it gives you that feeling the poet really sees there's something going on here. 
Light in various forms has been one of the mainstays and in the United States, the United Kingdom and many other countries, light has been delivered in the form of a fixture that somebody takes to their home, puts on a tabletop or desk or stands up on a stand and that gives them sufficient light in a safe way to reverse the symptoms. Everybody's experience is a little bit different, but for me, if I'm down on a winter day and I sit in front of the lights, within, I would say, even minutes, I begin to feel better. I begin to feel like I have an old friend on hand and that it won't be long before I'm more energetic and I can face what has to be done. In Sweden, they took a different tack. They created light rooms and they were beautiful. I actually remember walking into one of them and being so pleasantly influenced by the rays of light coming from every surface. The trouble is that that didn't turn out to be very practical because people want to be treated in their own homes. The interesting thing about the light box, and it comes out in the witness seminar, is the idea of therapy through the eyes. And Norman Rosenthal talks about the resistance that people had that, could that be an effective therapy? We're used to having a tablet or an injection. The idea that you just sit in light, you know, that was a really quite difficult thing to actually overcome, to actually start thinking that that was going to be an effective therapy. And of course, another interesting part of this whole approach of light therapy is reimbursement. How do people get paid for this? You know, it's not like you get a prescription and take it from your doctor to the chemist. Light therapy is a very difficult issue, particularly in America, whether the acceptability of the therapy has actually been responsible for the acceptability of the syndrome. If the syndrome is recognised and classified under the DSM, then the treatments have to be reimbursed. So there's a lot of resistance about saying SAD is a proper disease, a proper syndrome, because then these light boxes have to be paid for. I think we started the association in 1986 I would stagger out of bed every morning in a dressing gown. I wouldn't wash, I wouldn't do anything, but there'd be a sack or sometimes more of post all about people who'd heard something about sad on the radio or TV. It was like being everybody's agony aunt. There were people who'd spent every winter in bed throughout their lives and nobody had been able to help. It's an interesting phenomenon because it has been very largely patient-led. It's patients who have almost brought this to the fore. There is something almost not quite respectable about SAD. It's one of these things perhaps people are not coping with modern life and it's not a proper syndrome. Finally, after about five years of the SAD Association, it was well enough known about that suicides were first recognised as being due to SAD. And it's the first time we got a coroner's verdict saying this is undoubtedly due to seasonal affective disorder. And although that's tragic, it's, it sort of vindicates. SAD is a very nice example of a kind of case study in the history of emotions. For an emotional disorder to emerge, certain things need to happen. You need to have some actual mental distress, you need to have people complaining of it, but you also need a lot of other things. You need experts, doctors and scientists providing new names, new categories, new tests, new diagnostic criteria. You need ideally to have a treatment as well, something that can be prescribed, can be sold, can be bought or can be given um, to 
relieve the suffering of the people with the new syndrome or the new disorder. But you also need a great deal of public awareness, and for that you need the media, you need culture, you need maybe films or books or movies, you'd certainly need radio programmes, newspapers and magazines. And what was so fascinating for me attending the witness seminar about SAD was seeing how all these things I've just described came together in the creation of this novel affective disorder. Now I'm not saying it never existed in the past, what I am saying is that with this name and with this particular configuration, it didn't exist in the past. After we described and named seasonal affective disorder, we went back into the literature and found that the French psychiatrist Esquirol in the early 1800s had recognized a businessman who had come to him at the beginning of winter and told him about past winters where he had had tremendous problems of what we now see as seasonal affective disorder. And Esquirol said, you know, at the beginning of winter, you have to go to the south of France, and from there you have to go to Italy. And he managed to prevent the depression with this geographical cure. We may well suppose there's something fairly constant about the human body across times and places. Of course, we're all different and we're all affected in different ways by, for example, the seasons changing or by sunlight. But we tend to assume there's some underlying organic unity to the human body, to the human physiology. But that is very hard to get at. And what historians can show is how the articulation of that body, how the way that body expresses itself and is interpreted, and how that body affects mental experiences and mental distress, changes over time and can change quite rapidly. Then there were other descriptions going into the 20th century. One very prominent case was by a Colonel Fromkus, who described a patient he called the unmarried clerk. And every winter this person would experience these same symptoms, which we now see as seasonal affective disorder, and yet because he was viewing it through a psychoanalytic lens, he interpreted it all in terms of Freudian dynamics. Historians of psychiatry sometimes talk about transient mental illnesses, ones that come and go, something called suppressed gout in the Victorian period, people aren't any longer diagnosed with that, or something called busman's stomach, which was a very particular psychosomatic disorder. And it's really not to say if something is a transient mental illness that the suffering is transient or the disorder is not real. It's a question of the way that doctors and scientists categorise and recategorise the mind and the suffering of the mind. And it may be that in future generations, SAD will remain as a diagnosis or it might have been subsumed in some other new way of talking about depression or melancholia, which have been discussed in very many different terms but with some consistency over the centuries. My name's Helen Hansen, and I'm the chair of the Seasonal Affective Disorder Association of Great Britain. Until recently, I was a full-time artist. My subject matter was the British countryside, and that's where I wanted to be. If you look at my art, if you look at the landscape etchings that I did, you would probably see that I was a sad sufferer. Looking back at them over 25 years or so, I can see that they simply divide into seasons. My customers were always sort of divided between whether they preferred what they called my mournful seascapes or my bright plants. It's a curious split, really, between 
loving it and hating it. I think that part of the reason why I suffer so much from the seasons is because I really experience them. And the part of me that's the artist likes to, you know, likes to wallow in that. The fact that it, it makes me feel physically uncomfortable and mentally disturbed, it's all part of the package. It's very useful to see seasonal affective disorder against the backdrop of animal seasonal rhythms. Because seasonal rhythms, for example, the winter, poses a challenge. People have to get through a time, well, at least historically, had to get through a time where there was a lack of food, uh, they had to keep warm, they had to somehow adjust to these marked seasonal changes. So many of the seasonal rhythms that we see in animals are energy conservation rhythms. When spring comes, sometimes it can be quite, quite a rough ride. What I don't like is when it seesaws, because I seesaw as well, and I'll start to feel, you know, full of beans, and then suddenly it will change and I'll go into reverse again. I think if I've learned anything from my experience, it's that we shouldn't forget that we're animals. At the Witness Seminar, the chairman, Brian Follett, mentioned a really striking image of a group of musk ox in northern Norway, surrounded by snow, standing there, just standing there for weeks and weeks at a time, just surviving. They're not hibernating, they just stand very still, um, frozen almost uh, by the extreme weather. And Brian Follett said, wouldn't it be nice to ask those musk ox how they felt? There's a condition among reindeers in Svalbard called Arctic resignation where they just freeze on the ice. And if a predator were to come, they wouldn't even move because winter is more dangerous to them than a predator. And having to exert energy and burn up calories would be more dangerous to them than predators which don't actually exist in that particular environment. So I think if we see winter historically as a challenge in terms of being able to get through the winter where there's very little food and the temperatures drop. You can imagine how some people might have benefited from being less active and gaining weight in the winter. And those genes might have been selected at those times. Nowadays, nobody gives you much credit for gaining weight and being inactive. You don't have a selective advantage. People might just say you're lazy or you might have a competitive disadvantage when everybody's expected to work all year round, all day long. What's powerful about that image is the suggestion again of the connection of the human mind with the, the wider natural world, with the seasons and also with other animals. When someone suffers from SAD, are they going into some sort of withdrawal, not hibernating, but something like a group of muskox just standing, frozen by the change in the weather? It's a modern psychiatric disorder, but in a way maybe it's even a product of the modern world, the fact that we've wrenched ourselves away from a more natural rhythm of life and from the seasons. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, tis like the distance on the look of death. <laughs> <laughs>